from Kurtco Media. There's something about those drag cars, man. When you're standing on the start line, that there isn't anything any better, any more impressive than a 10,000 horsepower fuel dragster taking off the start line. It pulls me back. That was the voice of Don the Snake Prudhomme, one of our guests today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with Cars That Matter. We have a couple of really special guests today, Don Prudhomme and Alana Shear. Welcome, friends. Nice to be on the show. Hi. Well, it's great to have you here. I don't think Don Prudhomme needs any introduction. Alana Shear, for those of us in the car enthusiast arena, needs none either. Alana, you're a person who kind of walks the walk. You've competed at the sportsman level. You can turn a mean wrench on a Hemi motor. And most importantly, you can write like hell. And in this case, you have helped to organize and present one of the most compelling books on an automotive luminary that I've ever read. Your recent book, Don the Snake Prudhomme, My Life Beyond the 1320. Congratulations to you both. What a great book. Thank you. I feel the same way about Ilana. I'm just constantly talking about her because (laughs) we've known each other. But when we got into this book situation, I really don't think I could have done a book without her, a type of book like this, because we really dug deep. She took it all out of me, I can tell you. And we put it on paper and she's responsible for it. Don, I have to admit, reading this book, I got the feeling that I walked away with a real sense of who you and your family are. This is a year and a half long project. So you and Ilana really put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into this. I guess the interviews and the scrapbooks and all the history, a lot of things came to the surface. Yes, it did, Ilana. (laughs) Very much so. What was the impetus for this book? Kartek had come to Don with the idea of doing a book. He sort of casually mentioned it to me like, ah, they want me to do a book project. It's a lot of work. I've done some book projects before. It's a lot of interviews. I don't know if I want to do it. And I said, you should totally do it. Absolutely, you should do it. You have an amazing story. You've told me all these great stories. You should do a book. And then, I don't know, what was it? A week or two later, Don, you call me again. You're like, would you do it? <laughs> I'd never done a book before and I couldn't have asked for a better subject for my first book because the stories are so good. The book would have been good no matter who did it because Don's stories are good and he, he tells stories so wonderfully. We talked about it a lot. How do you want it? Do you want it first person? Do you want it third person? Do you want it more historical? Do you want it about racing? He had very specific desires for the book. He said, I want it to not just be numbers. People can look all that up. It's already been written down. I want to talk about cars, but I want to talk about the people who were around those cars. And I want to talk about what it was like for me outside of the cars as well. And all of that seemed like something that I could really get behind. And so then when we started working on it, I just wanted to try and get across what it was like to be in the room with Don while he was telling me those stories. I wanted people to feel like they were also in the room having him tell those stories because it's such an amazing experience. You certainly both accomplished that. You were able to draw the most out of Don, and Don was particularly generous in opening up your heart and your feelings to something that does go far beyond just the ETs. As I think you said in the book, the story goes beyond the quarter mile mark and really digs into what it took to create your successful career, one that spans five decades, which is quite a statement in and of itself. There was a statement of the book that you relayed. You said Dan Gurney told you, if you want to do it bad enough, kid, 
you'll find a way. That must have been pretty inspiring. Yeah, and that's a true story. He used to come over to Keith Black's shop in Downey. Keith Black had a shop there, and I was working on my little dragster at Keith's shop. And I was interested in circle track racing big time. Swede Savage, who was driving for him at the time, him and I become big buddies. So I'm bugging Gurney about, hey, how can I get a ride? How can I get a ride? And he'd blow me off <laughs> every so often, you know. And then there's one time he said, kid, if you want to do it bad enough, you'll find a way. And oh my gosh, that was the best advice I ever got. And I just, I really loved the guy. It was some good advice. But by the way, I didn't do it to your listeners. I never did drive the circle car. I never did get in any car <laughs> because I didn't want to do it bad enough. And that's what it all amounted to. I use that a lot with young people. Sometimes they ask me, hey, how can I get a ride? How can I do this drag racing thing? And I'll say, well, maybe Frank Holly's school or something. But then sometimes I turn to the kid and say, kid, if you want to do it bad enough, you'll find a way. That's the truth. That's the way it goes. That's life. You grew up in San Fernando Valley. So did I. So when you're talking about riding your bicycle through the groves of citrus trees and all that, boy, I, that reminded me of my youth. The valley was an amazing place. Cars connected everything together. Van Eyes to the beach to down downtown LA. I mean, everything happened at a car and talking about going to Bob's Big Boy in Van Nuys and you worked at the GM manufacturing plant. You were really a part of the fabric of the Valley back in the 50s and early 60s. I just feel like that was the best part of the whole world was the San Fernando Valley back in the 50s and 60s. It was cars, cars everywhere, including the GM plant, including Bob's Big Boy. And if we really got ballsy, we'd cruise over the hill over into Santa Monica or something like that or Hollywood but for the most part we just hung out in the valley and did my fair share of street racing as a young guy. But you also had a fair share it sounds to me reading this book a number of obstacles to overcome. You didn't mince words. You said you didn't graduate from high school. Sounds like those nuns in the Catholic school were not too hospitable. Reading posed challenges. You say that your wife Lynn taught you essentially helped you to read. I mean, what a story to tell. She's the only one that really took the time. It takes time especially when you're dyslexic. You have to read in a different way than they teach you in school. And she was really sharp. And then my daughter also is dyslexic. And we were able to spot that right off the bat because I was just worried like hell that when she was born and started going to school that she would catch on to reading just like Lynn. Lynn is really sharp. But no, she had the same struggles that I did. So we sent her to a special school and now she runs the company. So she's damn good. Obviously, that's true. Don, just in case they don't know, where'd the snake come from? Just quick off the starting line, driving that car. We were winning so many races that the driver got a lot of credit for it. I hate to tell everyone that it wasn't just the driver. It was Keith Black. But quick off the start line, we were just winning a lot of races. And one of the guys in the crew put the nickname on me. He just started calling me Snake. And the next thing I know, the announcer did. The next thing I know, Mattel Toy Company opened the doors for Tom McEwen and myself. And that's when it really took off in 1970, the Snake of the Mongoose. You got to be a good looking snake. And he, what do you call it? A funny little rat thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> One of the fun things about the photos in the book is you can see the evolution of the snake logo. There's definitely some experimental snakes in the early years. So Tom was able to, with his mongoose, he always had a really a neat mongoose. He used that forever. And I went through so many different styles of snakes. And Mattel had one. I had one. Kenny Youngblood designed one. And so I've had a lot of different snakes. And to be honest with you, Lana, we never talk about this, but it's very hard to embroider on something. Snake with all the different colors and everything. So I had to get a simple stylized one. So I ended up with the one I have now. But yeah, 
Mongoose was lucky, though. He was like, with that bitch in Mongoose's claws. <laughs> so, his worked out great. You talk about Mongoose. Obviously, that's Tom McEwen, a friend and rival that you shared a lot of memories about in the book. Yeah, it was super sad to lose him, which hasn't been that many years ago. We, we lost him, but we were a lot closer than what people realize. We talked every other day on the phone, or he'd come down for lunch down to Vista here. I'd go up and visit him. So away from the racetrack, we were like brothers. I mean, we would fight, though. Sometimes we'd argue, and mine's better, yours is better, just like a couple of kids. But yeah, we ended up being... Uh, the best of friends. That certainly comes through in the book. You share a lot of real heartfelt thoughts in there. A lot of the people that had an impact on your career, of them, where do you even start? I mean, who were some of the notable people you'd like to talk about in the course of your career, Don? Well, the guy that really did a whole lot for me was Keith Black of Keith Black Racing Engines. He was very special, but there's several people. If you want to start with Tom Ivo, Ivo, we went on tour together. He kind of took me under his wing and I learned a lot of about racing. There were several people. Ed Pink was another one that was a big influence in my life. He really taught me how to tune an engine along with Keith. Keith Black gave me a big break. He gave me credit at his shop when I went on my own of a couple of engines. And in those days, people didn't get credit. And he'd tell me, when you get the money, let's just work off the payments. And, and he basically put me in business. Up until that time, I was driving for the Roland, the Ong, and the Hawaiian, or I was doing the B&M Torque Master car, Shelby Super Snake. But none of those cars belonged to me. And so when I went on my own and bought my own car, Keith helped finance the whole thing. If it wasn't for him, I, I just, I don't know what would happen to me. I, I'm sure I'd have found a way somehow because I wouldn't do it bad enough. Well, that's probably a pretty good segue to talk about what is, I guess, arguably the most famous drag racing automobile in history. And that's the Greer Black Prudhomme Dragster. Everybody's had experience with that car. I remember being in seventh grade homeroom and my mean old math teacher told me, young man, what are you doing? And I'm under my breath. I'm saying, what do you mean? What am I doing? I'm drawing the most famous dragster in the world, you <laughs> old witch. And I'm 65 years old, Don. So that's how long this thing has been cemented in my mind. And then to obviously be able to even see it today in Bruce's collection. What a cherished piece of racing history. And of course, that was your car. I didn't own it. I was fortunate to drive it. <laughs> I felt like it was my car. But you know, you're so right. I looked at that car the other day over Bruce Myers. No matter what what angle you're at looking at it, whether the front or the side or the back, it's like a sculpture piece. It's just so well-proportioned. I think it's the most beautiful dragster ever built. And Wayne Ewing built it, and Kim Fuller did the chassis. There's no question. It is a piece of sculpture and probably one of the most beautiful and important four-wheeled icons ever. I can imagine Alana would agree. <laughs> one of the things that I really enjoyed in doing the book is that a lot of times if you talk to a race car driver about the cars, especially NASCAR and road racing drivers who maybe had a lot more cars during a year than a drag racer, they're not very affectionate about the cars. At the most, they'd be like, yes, that was a good car and I enjoyed winning in it. But they really tend to talk about them like machinery. And I was not expecting Don to be as tender about all of the cars as he was. At one point I said, how come you kept them so much? How come you didn't just sell them and get the next one like most people did? And and he said, I liked them. I was <laughs> I was fond of them. I didn't, I didn't want someone else to have them. <laughs> yeah, you become, at least I did, I just become really a 
emotionally involved with the car. The car was a part of me, and it, not all the cars, but there's some special ones, the Army car, the Monza, the Monza 76 Monza was just a, it, it was a sculpture piece too. The balance of the car, when you're in the car and you're driving in it, and the thing is so well balanced, and I always felt I was going to win with it because it was the best car out there. And I was fortunate to carry that on with a lot of my cars, but I just become real involved with the cars, and I didn't want anybody else to have them. Ilana pointed out most of the guys would build a car and push it aside and get another one. Well, I pushed it aside, but I kept it for years and years and until they become so valuable. I had to sell the damn things, you know, to, to my 401k plan. That's pretty funny. I remember Carol Shelby telling me about how he couldn't give those Daytona coupes away after they were done with their racing careers. And uh, you were obviously one of the guys smart enough to keep your cars. Look, you're a modest guy and I'm not going to embarrass you, but just so our listeners understand, we're talking to Don Perdome with 49 NHRA wins. And out of 589 competitions overall, you took 389 victories. You add up all that and I probably drove about 50 miles. (laughs) 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 Quarter mile by quarter mile. They were fast ones, though. They were fast ones. I don't want to put you on the spot, Don, but is there a way you can kind of take our audience through what it really is like? I mean, how do you feel the morning of a race? Is it What did you do to get yourself psyched up and it's over as quickly as it began? Yeah, it seems that way, but it actually is in slow motion for me when I'm in the car because I was able to understand what was around me, understand who I was racing against. And so it was just a whole process. You brought that up about what I get out of it. Well, that's one of the reasons I quit driving was that I was into it so heavily until the night before the race, I couldn't hardly sleep. So the next day I was just tired and tired. And then finally it worked on me so much until I ended up retiring, but it takes a toll on you. And I had ulcers like you can't believe. And Richard Petty was the same way. He had half his stomach taken out from ulcers because we were the type or I was the type of person that took it to heart. It was like everything to me when I was driving and racing all those years. So there was just nothing would stand in my way of winning the race. And I think that really stems from it with readers. I'll see if they get a hold of this book, by the way, that my early childhood is what drove me. And I think the readers will maybe find something there in their childhood that drove them. And I think when you look at a lot of athletes and a lot of race car drivers, there's usually something, something back when they were a little young kid that drove them to success. When I got to the point, although I was dyslexic and I still had my problems, I was able to overcome that by being determined. And I wasn't going to let anything stop me once again. Well, thanks for sharing that, Don. You clearly were determined. And I think one of the things that affected me most in the book is when you talk about your family and some of the discoveries that you made about your past. I happen to know if you don't ask a person with a Creole heritage how their family's doing, you may as well not even bother to say hello. The sense of family that you discovered by going down south and learning who some of your relatives were was a very affecting thing for you. Yeah, and I spent about my racing career, about maybe the first 20, 30 years, of it just buried into the sport. And my heritage is something that had always bugged me. When you had folks that didn't want to discuss your background, kept you from who you really are, that affected me dearly. So going down when I this 20 years of just burying myself into the sport. And then finally retiring and going down to Cane River down in Louisiana and discovering aunts and stuff and uncles. And it was 
the best time of my life. It was special. Elon is the one that brought all that out in me. I don't think I would have discussed that with anybody, but we got so damn close. Her husband, Tom, and my wife, Lynn, I mean, we all know each other. We got really close, really close to discuss these kind of things. I wouldn't discuss it with anybody until she came along. For me, coming from it from a different time period where I'm younger, to me, the idea of not knowing or not being comfortable talking about your heritage was like, wait, what? Why would you not? And so so it was a lot of research for me. I, I talked to a lot of different people and it wasn't just Don's folks. They weren't weird. It was something that a lot of people of mixed heritage did in the United States is if you could pass as a racial background that had it easier in the 50s, it was something that people did. Um, maybe not hey, my mom was from the South and she had to tell her family that she didn't marry a Jew. She married an Italian. Yeah. <laughs> It was a real thing. And it's something that people are starting to talk about so much more now. And so when Dawn told me about meeting people in Louisiana, which she told me about way, way before we worked on this book, and then he would give me updates and he would be like, oh, you know, this nephew or that great nephew or whatever is doing this. And it's interesting. And I said, this is good stuff, Dawn. One of the things that we went into the book talking about initially is that Dawn's reputation has always been extremely cool and not extremely nice. He's always like, whenever somebody would come up to me and be like, I used to know you back in the day, I'd be like, well, was I nice to you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> like, so true. I thought that talking to him more about what drove him, what questions he was dealing with, all of that was so powerful to me. It's like, you know, everyone that you ever meet in this world has this whole back history that you know nothing about. And there's going to be very beautiful parts of it. There's going to be really difficult parts of it. And all of that is what they're dealing with under the surface all the time. And I thought that if Don is incredibly successful, incredibly cool guy could talk about moments where he was questioning his family, his skills, his talents, then that could maybe help everyone else out there who's dealing with it now. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. We're back with Don Prudhomme and Alana Shear. Robert, ask Don to talk you through a run. It's one of my favorite things to do to him. Oh, stop it. I didn't want to put the poor guy on a spot. Uh, he can do it. Don, take us through a run. Well, the queer black Prudhomme car, you'd have to slide into it like this and get your seatbelts all hooked down and everything. You push start it. Remember the push start? You have to use your truck to push it and it would roll off and the truck's pushing you and pushing you and you gently let the clutch slide the clutch out and then you can hear the engine start turning over and the oil pressure gauge comes up and you got oil pressure and then you what you call prime it you prime the throttle a little bit and then hit the switch and pow time you hit the switch the thing boom and it take off and pull away from the truck and whoop 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 whoop, whoop and start running going towards the start line and that's where we made a u-turn back those days 
come back down the track. Those were the best times of when we used to push start our cars. Oh my God. The master of them all was Don Garland. So you have his hand up in the air, like waving, like go. And he, was, he would be hanging half out of the roll cage. It was beautiful times. That is absolutely irreplaceable. And the cars sure changed. Those front engine cars were dangerous stuff, man. It was very dangerous. But we didn't know at the time. At the time, you're young, you're a kid, you drive anything. But I was always fortunate to be in good equipment. I must say I was very lucky. For some reason, I picked the right things and I wanted to do it bad enough. I worked at getting a good ride. And the Shelby Super Snake was a fantastic car. I had the Ford Cameron and the B&M Torque Master car was a good car too. The Hawaiian 1965 Roland Leong Hawaiian Dragster and the Guerre Black Perdone car. And before that was the Zutra Fuller car. So I was in good cars. I think a lot of guys would think, well, the only reason this guy won is because he was in a good car. And I tell them that they're probably right. But but nevertheless, I did have a hand in doing it, but I was always in good equipment. Like Mario is the same way. He's always run good equipment. When he went Formula One racing, he was in the Lotus. He had an advantage. The cars had an advantage and, and he won the championship. So it takes a good car. Driver, yes, but it takes a great car also. Well, you're certainly modest about that, Don, but I suspect that unlike most drivers, you've actually got a broader arsenal of skill sets. Everything from blocking and painting a car body to really understanding the mechanics, the engines, the chassis dynamics. You go pretty deep in these things. You're not just quote unquote driving. You're right. I learned how to do that and I could feel it. I could feel the car when you're letting the clutch out and the engine turning over and you know why it's turning over and you know what it's doing. And Keith Black taught me that and along with Ed Pink, but Keith Black was really instrumental in showing me how to make a 426 engine run, a Hemi engine. He was great at it. There were certainly some great luminaries and it was all happening here in Southern California. But of course, your travels took you all around the country. Did you ever do any internet national racing? Did this stuff ever get overseas? Not really. Never cared to, to be honest with you. I went to Europe once, set a pod, drag strip. We took a car over there and ran the car and I sold the car to a guy and I went over there and run it and they had a big crowd and it was more of an exhibition. And the first thing that happened is it was run through the lights and it blew an engine, ruined all the pistons. We worked all night long in a Quonset hut fixing the thing. <laughs> I'll never come back here again without my tractor trailer rig and the crew and everything. So that taught me a good lesson that when you're racing, you better bring all the, the right equipment with you. Outside of that, I went over there for Leo Mel, a Goodyear Tire Rubber Company. He sent us over there with my Monza in 76 to have it on display in Bologna, Italy at an auto show. Uh, Nicky Lotta was at the show and got to meet him and went over to the Ferrari plant. It's a guy by the name of Bernard Caillé, he was a journalist. He knew Enzo quite well. And of course, he could speak Italian. Went over and sat in Enzo Ferrari's office. He gave me a book, autographed the book for me. No English, of course, but that was a thrill. Then went over to the Proovy Grounds they have. They have a little race course right near the factory. I got to ride around there with Nicky Lotta in a 308 GTB Ferrari. And he was showing me he had it sideways. And I thought, oh, my God. So then I had to get a Ferrari after that. So I become a complete Formula One nut and a Ferrari nut all in one weekend. It was an expensive trip for you. It was an expensive trip, yes. What a great story. Fortunately, in my career, I've got to know the greats. The A.J. Foyts is one guy that I got to know really well. And matter of fact, there's a picture of Foyt, Gurney, Mario, and myself standing by my dragster in the book. I remain good friends with all these guys. And I don't know why these guys took me under their wing, but I feel that. Like, Mario's always treated me really good, and I totally appreciate it. And I did talk 
talked to a couple of those guys for the book. We did a bunch of supporting interviews to include it just to back up what Don's saying. So nobody could accuse him of telling only his story. And everyone always said the same thing, that they saw the focus. They respected the focus. What is it? Player recognized game? <laughs> so... I think they respected you as a as a fellow. Alana, how did you get Don to talk about all this stuff? Don and I have known each other a long time. We met before I was even writing about cars because I was on a car club tour of his shop and he still had the haulers there, the Hot Wheels haulers. It was a car club and everybody was, they were all nice and excited, but they wanted to get their autographs and they wanted to look at the race cars and stuff. And he was my boyfriend at the time and I were the only ones who were interested in the trucks, which had just been finished. So I knew that Don was very excited about the trucks. You're always the most excited about your most recently finished projects. So, I mean, I wasn't trying to impress him. I really wanted to see the trucks. We'd been following the builds that had been covered on NHRA and stuff. And so we asked him to see more of the trucks. And he was so nice. And I was really shy. I knew who Don Perdomo was. I mean, I'd watched him when he was a team owner on TV. I'd seen him at Pomona and stuff. And I couldn't believe that he was telling me about the trucks. He let me sit in the truck. He took a picture of me. <laughs> it was a really cool experience. And not too long after that, I got a job as a writer at Hot Rod Magazine. And one of my first assignments was the Carol Shelby Memorial. It was a very nice presentation. And I saw Don there at the end. And my boyfriend and I had just gotten a project truck. We found a, a similar truck to the Hot Wheels truck that used to belong to another racer named Dick Landy. And I knew that Prudhomme and Dick Landy had been friends because they had shops that were near each other in the valley. And so I went over. I didn't think he was going to remember me, but I was like, hey, you know, you showed me run your trucks. And I wanted to tell you that we got a truck and it was Landy's truck. His eyes got all big and he grabbed me by the arm and he pulled me over to the corner. He's like, show me pictures. And then he was like, text those pictures to me. I got to show Roland. And the next thing I know, we were in regular communication, not for work stuff, just about this truck project. He wanted to know what we were going to do. He wanted to know how much progress Tom was making. And then because I was at Hot Rod, when I started to get opportunities to do story assignments about drag racing, I'd call Don for a quote. Or one of the early stories we did was I had found in the archives some photos from the 1968 Mexican 1000, which Don had run with Tony Nancy in a car that should have been run by Steve McQueen. I think that story is in the book. And so I called him to do a story on that. And we just got along really well. We'd see each other at the drag races. And he would tell me stories about his life. Like one time he came to the Valley and just took me on a tour of the Valley. Like, oh, this is where Ed Pink's shop was. And this is where we used to drag race. And this is where Bud Eakin's shop was. And I met Steve McQueen there. And that's my old house. And so he told me some of the stories that ended up in the book. So I knew some of these stories already, including some of the sad stories and some of the difficult stories. And so when we started sitting down to work on the book, it wasn't like I just had a blank page and said, all right, Don, what was your life like? I was able to say things like, okay, um, do you remember telling me about your friend, Tom McCurry? When did you meet Tom? How did you know you were going to be friends? Like that kind of thing. And I think that that knowledge and previous experience made it easier to get past the beginning stories and into some of the deeper ones. We should mention to our audience, those trucks you guys are talking about weren't just any old truck. Those are two of the most famous trucks in the history of funny cars. Tell us about your restoration of those things, Don. You actually did that yourself, didn't you? It started with the Hot Wheel cars, first of all. I restored the original Hot Wheel cars. Two most famous funny cars in history. Yeah, exactly. And Mongoose was doing his, too. He was restoring a car. And I thought about the trucks. I said, oh my God, how nice it would be to be able to put this car 
back on the original truck. So I went to work looking for the truck just everywhere. And the truck originally came from Richard Petty. It was shipped out because we were hooked up with Plymouth at the time. It was shipped out to California with just a cab and chassis. So the back section, we had that built down in LA. Mongoose bought one from Sox and Martin and he did some fab work on that. And so both trucks were matching. One was yellow and the other was red. The cars on the back, it was just, it was the time of my life. But unlike Ilana building their truck, I had about five guys working full time, including myself, block sanding, primary, painting. We put a big tent up in the back of my shop in Vista, and that's where we did the spray work. So watching Ilana and Tom work on their truck, it was a little different. I I don't envy them at all. <laughs> so the truck journey was something. And then, of course, I found Mongoose's truck, and he didn't have any interest in restoring it and restored it. It was a labor of love. It really was. It's just something that it just came along at the perfect time of my life, too, because I had retired from racing. You know, I need things, and everybody does, to keep them busy and so on. And the trucks, I just jumped into it with both feet. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old. And today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dreams. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcocom slash a moment of your time. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. We met some time ago, Don, at a dinner where Carol Shelby was introducing his Super Snake. It was a new Shelby Mustang and was the Don Prudhomme edition. I remember meeting you at that dinner. I think it was probably back around 2006 or seven, maybe. I can't remember. But man, I thought this guy is cool. And what a great name for Shelby's fastest car at the time. You shared a lot of things in the book about kind of what kept you going. You've alluded to everything from the ulcers to not being able to sleep at night before a race. But what kept you going when things did look like they were on the bleak side? I mean, there's several years and some of it was financially. That was the hardest part is raising money to do it. Those sponsors don't just come along, do they? No, but you also have to have the drive for that, the drive for the actual racing, the performance part, but to dealing with sponsors. And as Ilana pointed out, I wasn't the most charming guy in the pit area. (laughs) (laughs) People often want how the hell come this guy got sponsored because he's a real jerk but i delivered i think i delivered i always wanted to give them their buck 50 worth when they paid me money i wanted to make sure that they were paid back really well obviously that was a formula that worked out until of course 2008 came along and clobbered everybody 2008 and nine yeah it was terrible years she pointed out he brought that up that's the year i retired and the journey up to that in the book i think explains it pretty well and i think that most people will understand and one of the biggest compliments that I got from this book, I sent it out to a number of good friends, and one of them was Mario Andretti. So my phone rang shortly after I sent it out to him, and he goes, hey, this book is really good. Mario's telling me <laughs> that. And not just Mario, but several of my friends, Richard Thor, all my buddies that I have, I mean, they really enjoy the book. And I think it's kind of brought me closer to all these guys now, too, because... 
like Roland Leong. I mean, there's things in the book that as long as I've known Roland, he didn't know about my life. And I met him back in Hawaii in 1962 or 63, whenever it was. He was surprised when he got the book and said, holy Christ, Snake. And he said, I didn't know all this. In the book, you talk about how the first period of time you retired was just a terrifying, what do I do now kind of experience. But psychologically and emotionally, obviously the challenges were great, but it seems like it ended up better than ever. Yeah. You know, I'm still challenged with wanting to race, wanting to still be a part of it. I am still a part of it. I got deep up with John Force last year. We ran a car for Austin Proct called the Montana brand car. A fellow by the name of Frank Teague sponsored it. So I was able to go out to the track and dip my toe in the water a little bit and have some fun. And I'm looking forward to later this year. We're not going to start till March, but I'm looking forward to getting back out the track. There's something that, and believe me, I'm hip on NASCAR and Indy cars and Formula One. I mean, I love Formula One, but there's something about those drag cars, man. When you're standing on the start line, that there isn't anything any better, any more impressive than a 10,000 horsepower fuel dragster taking off the start line. It pulls me back. I see older guys at the track, guys like me that used to do it, that still wants to come around and get the smell of that nitro and watch the cars because they're exciting. Looks like you got some furry friends. There's some great pictures in the book of you driving around on your little golf cart with the canines. They're a part of the program. And you too, Alana, huh? Another thing that Don and I have in common is both pretty fond of the animals, so send each other pictures of our dogs. Somebody might be like, oh, why'd you put a picture of the dog and why'd you put so many pictures of dogs and, you know, why'd you put a picture of Don playing with Donna in a pool and, you know, like, what what do these have to do with racing? But something that was very important to me, something that I think has been really missing from much of automotive history and journalism is that great men don't do things alone. There's always all these other people. And a lot of those people are women and children. And the reason for winning is often more than just, I want a trophy. The reason for winning can be, I need the money so I can feed my family. The reason for winning can be, I want my children to be proud of me. And one of the things that's so great about Don always, even in old interviews, if there's any hint of personal information given, it was always about Lynn and Donna, always. It was always credit being given to Lynn for her help. It was always love being expressed for Donna. I think that he's not alone in that and that we who tell stories should look beyond a single person. You look at some of the other legends and the stories that have been told about them, whether it's Carol Shelby or Steve McQueen or Richard Petty, and all of them had other people that helped make them successful, helped make them powerful. And to tell that whole story doesn't diminish them. It just makes them a more real person. Well, I can certainly feel the authenticity in this book recommended to our entire audience. How does somebody get a hold of a copy of Don the Snake Prudhomme, My Life Beyond the 1320? They're available at Barnes and Noble or Amazon. But if you get one from me, our shop, my daughter will handle it. It's at snakeracinggear.com. And I will put my signature on the book. And so anybody that buys a book from me gets it signed. So snakeracinggear.com. That's on our website. And uh, we'll, I just signed a bunch of books this morning. So there's one there sitting there for uh, whoever would like it. And we'll personalize it too. If you want your name on it, I'll do that also. Oh, and also you can get it at cartechbooks.com. But the coolest place is to get it from Don. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sincere thanks to Don Prudhomme and Alana Shear for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. 
This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.